Welcome to the Life After Sugar podcast. The podcast that's not just about sugar, but about your relationship with it and also with food and especially with yourself. So if you want to discover your life after sugar and hear inspiring stories from all kinds of people who also cut out sugar in their way, at their pace, for their own reasons, this is the podcast for you. Because you know, when you take away the sugar, you can finally discover the real sweetness in your life. I'm your host, Netta Gorman. And today I'm talking with Erin Power, who spent most of her life in the fitness industry, although she says that through most of her fitness career, she watched people fail time and time again. They were following all the rules And so was she. They were counting, weighing, measuring, diarising and failing. Because they were in the diet culture. And the diet culture often fails us. Because it doesn't actually allow us to learn how our bodies function. Eat less, move more, track your calories. Um, no. In fact, it was when Erin had a revelation about her own body that she dove into the research, healed herself and became passionate about teaching people the true biochemical workings of metabolism. And that's what we're talking about in this episode. So here's my chat with Erin. All right, so I'm here with Erin Powers. And Erin, can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with food, with sugar, with your weight in your younger years? Mm -hmm. Yes. In my younger years, it, uh, it started off like so many people's do I, maybe not, but I think from what I've heard from my clients, this is pretty common is that I had a mom that dieted. I had a mom that dieted. I remember my mom, uh, we would be in the store and she would point at other women and say, am I as fat as that lady? Is she fatter than me or am I, am, am I fatter than her? And I'm a like seven-year-old kid and thinking, oh, this is important grown-up stuff. So really started early. And that's no fault of my mom because my mom was born into a diet culture, just as I was born into a diet culture. And it's cultural. It's it's generational. It's nobody's fault. Like I'm not here to blame the moms, but that's, you know, that's my indoctrination into my relationship with my body it has to be a certain shape and size. So then, you know, cue my teens, twenties and thirties, just battling that with severe disordered eating. Um, I was anorexic in my twenties. I had to be, um, I had to be hospitalized because I was in a really bad state for a while there. I kind of clawed myself out of it. Um, but just, just honestly then employed, extreme exercise as my new disorder of choice. It was just a lot. It was a lot of, a lot of disordered eating. And what was really interesting slash annoying is that in my mid thirties, my early to mid thirties, I started putting weight on rapidly, despite the fact that I was exercising like a crazy person. You wouldn't believe how much exercise I was doing. This was my, this was my new disorder. It was like just exercising many, many hours a day, but I was putting abdominal weight on and I was I was, um, I call it checked out of life. I had a fatigue that was so tremendous that I couldn't even, I couldn't even exist in the way that a young 30 year old woman should exist. I just felt like I was, 
I was out. I was done. Just that fatigue, that total in your bones fatigue. I did go to my doctor with these two symptoms. I said, look, I'm pretty medically boring generally, but I've been putting on all this weight. Look at me in one year. I've put this much on around my trunk and I can't function. I'm so tired. And this is a Western medicine doctor, which I know some Western medicine doctors get a lot of flack, but she said, you know, that symptomatically sounds like what we would call insulin resistant. I'm going to send you for a blood test. Wow. I know. Like I, to this day, I'm grateful. I wish I could track her down because she, she kind of, she listened to my symptoms and actually put something together for me that nobody would have. Any other doctor might've said, well, just eat less and exercise more. And it's like, dude, I can't. <laughs> um, so she sent me for a blood test. I, sure enough, I'm pre-diabetic, but I don't know what that means. And I don't know what that means. I have no idea what that means and how it happens to somebody like me who honestly has been dieting and exercising their whole life. Because you think about diabetes, oh, that's just a lazy, sedentary, fat person. That's mm -hmm. sort of culturally what we would think. So then I had to set out to learn about what is pre-diabetes, what is diabetes. And that's when I got really learning about the human metabolism, because ultimately type 2 diabetes is um, a defective metabolism, a body that's forgotten how to use fuel in a manner of speaking. I put this stuff in real layman's terms, but I needed to understand it myself because I was a layperson. I was a layperson. I needed to understand what, what system of my body broke down here and why. So I learned a lot about how the way I'd been eating, the way I'd been moving and living was contributing to this insulin resistant state in my body. Certain foods exacerbate it. Certain styles of eating exacerbate it. For sure, the overtraining I was doing was exacerbating. It was such a, it was such an eye-opening experience because it was contrary to everything we'd been taught, which is as long as you eat less and exercise more, or as long as calories in and calories out are balanced, you're good. But it, there's so much more complexity to it. You know, it's complex, but it's also beautifully, elegantly simple at the same time. You know, it, it once you start to learn it. So that was my rabbit hole moment, learned all about it, became obsessed, became evangelical, by the way, cured my insulin resistance. Honestly, right the away. symptoms of, yeah, right away. Like the symptoms of them were quick to resolve. And I remember, and this is 10, this is 13 years ago. I remember the morning I woke up and I felt energy in my body again. And it was like, I didn't know I could feel like this. Whoa. Cause you know, in your thirties, you're like early to mid thirties, you think, oh, I'm eight, getting older. This yeah. is just part of getting older. But I, uh, I woke up with energy one day and that was the best feeling. And then, you know, I lost the abdominal weight too. That was a bonus for me. That wasn't my main goal. And this also repaired my relationship with food and body because now I understood how to fuel this amazing technology that I was given. And I, it, in, in practicing some of these tactics, it really taught me to respect and trust my body, which diet culture doesn't teach you. Diet culture teaches you the opposite. Don't trust it. Don't respect it. Micromanage it. Yeah. And, and I got to flip the script on that. Um, I had to go through, you know, pre-diabetes to get there, but you know, whatever I'm, I'm in my late forties. Now I've got half my life ahead of me and I've got this beautiful effortless relationship with food. My body works awesome. I'm not struggling with any weight or energy issues at all. It's easy. And so that's, that's where I'm at today. Wonderful. Wonderful. I totally relate to effortless, easy. And it feels like we're being glib about it, you know, and, and denying that other people are suffering, but, and, and sort of simplifying it to the point where, you know, it's dumbing it down 
Um, but actually, the way that we've been told that weight loss and weight gain works is, and as you were saying, this eat less, move more. I mean, it's a one-way road to illness, to exhaustion, weight gain. Like, why do they tell us that stuff? Well, they tell us that because technically, from a weight loss, weight management perspective, this caloric balance is 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 true. It's not untrue that caloric balance is necessary for weight management, that caloric deficit is necessary for weight loss, that caloric surplus creates weight gain. But but where where that falls down is in the execution. So if you said to somebody like me, a, a fat girl in her early 30s, just eat less. Well, I'm insulin resistant. I'm starving all the time. My cells are starved for fuel because they're broken. I can't eat less. I'm just too hungry. I'm 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 almost fainting from hunger, right? Because that system is broken. So it's just I just feel like it's. I actually really annoys me because I'm, I'm a health coaching educator. In addition to working with clients, I, I train and mentor health coaches, health nutrition and fitness coaches at, for a school that certifies health coaches. And I see a lot of fitness and health and nutrition experts out there kind of in social media saying caloric deficit, caloric deficit. Like they're kind of hanging this hat on just, you know, just restrict your calories and weight loss. Don't listen to these keto people. Don't listen to these paleo people, these anti-sugar people just, you know, lower your calories and you're good to go. And it's like, that doesn't work for people who are metabolically broken, period. So and that's the part really that's missing. Uh-huh. And it didn't really work for you when you were anorexic. I mean, it did work until it didn't, right? That's the thing is that my, your body, if your body pulls up, puts up with a lot of your bull crap, it will put up with your crap for a certain period of time and then it will stop. So in my twenties, I could pull off complete starvation. I couldn't pull it off. I had to go to the hospital. Let's be real. Um, but you know, I was skinny. I was very, very skinny, you know, and that, that, that's great. So then when that stopped working, when metabolically, my body went into this preservation mode, um, it really stopped working. And then, you know, even, and by the way, when I was putting on abdominal weight and I'm saying like, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, I'm hungry, because that's one of the symptoms of insulin resistance. I was never eating junk food. I'm an anorexic girl. I I won't, I don't eat McDonald's. I don't drink big gulps. I'm having fish and rice, but I'm having fish and rice eight times a day because I'm so hungry and I'm exercising so much. And also fitness culture told me if you exercise a lot, you need to eat a lot of carbohydrate to fuel that. So I'm having a massively high carbohydrate diet, which is further breaking my insulin sensitivity. It was this big cycle of me just following rules that somebody told me these platitudes, health platitudes, eat more of this, do more of that. You know, the eat less exercise more to me is a pointless platitude. There's no context to it. There's no nuance to it. It's just this dull tool of ignorance that that people just kind of smash us over the head with. And it doesn't work for some people, especially for insulin resistant people. Absolutely. It doesn't work. And I think what um, I think the diet culture has a lot to answer for (laughs) in our generalized just feeling like crap, let's say. Um, And one of the things that I am really mad about the diet culture for is that they don't allow us to think. It's like, you don't need to think of anything. And this is the teacher in me talking, you know, I mean, I spent my whole career, my teaching career, teaching young adults to think, to think, to analyze, to question. And then the diet culture just rips all that away. It does. You're right. It's, it is, it's just the set of rules that we kind of, kind of 
blindly fall in line and, and follow. That's not our fault. So again, for anybody listening, it, it, you, we were born into a diet culture and that whether you dieted or not, doesn't matter. The culture around us has facilitated this thinking about food. And, and I think you nailed it, which is that we, we've turned off our, we've turned off our brains about, it's almost like we don't need to understand this thing, but you do. And so when I work with clients, the first thing I want them to do is listen. I know listen to your body is such a, it's just at this point, so trite. So I don't say, listen to your, I, you know, I teach them how to listen to their body. And then it's like, listen, and then trust. That's the big part. But what's the body asking for? Here's a good example. Um, and this is going to ruffle some feathers, but we get told to drink eight to 10 glasses of water a day. Or I've heard this one, drink half your body weight in ounces of water per day. That is so much math. Like, I don't know how much I weigh. I don't know how many, I don't know. I'm, can we do this in milliliters? I don't know ounces. Anyway, but your body has a very elegant thirst mechanism. So if you feel thirsty, that's your body's way of saying water would be great. Fluid would be great. Then we get told, well, well the time, by the time you feel thirsty, you're already dehydrated. That doesn't even make sense. That's the, that's the, that's the kookiest thing. Why would the, why would that be a thing? Why would the body queue up? Oh shoot, too late. You're dehydrated. That's your thirst mechanism. All you have to do is listen, say, mm, my mouth is dry. Trust. But that means that I'm just thirsty. My body needs some water drink until thirst is quenched and then call it good. We don't have to micromanage this stuff. Right. But it, you know, I, I do feel for people because there's all these dumb rules and we follow them like little obedient soldiers. And I did too. I followed every rule. You kidding me? I followed that Canada's food guide, like to the letter. And well, once I cured myself from diabetes, that's the way I start or not diabetes from anorexia. That's the way I started working through my eating disorder recovery was being a really, really good eater, according to the food guide. And it didn't work because it's just a dumb rule. That's not based on any factual biology, nor is it based in any kind of actionable practices that people can hook into. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that as well, being a good girl and following all the rules. And that's actually contrary to my natural personality because I give the finger to most rules if they don't make sense. The, the thing is, you have to be minimally educated about human biology and the metabolism to realize that those rules, whether it's in the Canada Food Guide or the eat, more, eat less, move more thing, those rules make no sense. But they only make no sense when you actually know a little bit about human biology. Very true. That's really true. And, and what I like that you said was you have to be minimally educated. So what I go back to my origin story. As soon as the doctor said I was pre-diabetic, I immediately marched to the bookstore because I was in a mall. The doctor was in the mall and found a book on diabetes and just wanted to learn, like, what even is this? Like this hormone insulin, what does it do? I didn't know what it did. I never knew. We don't learn that. And I just needed to understand generally, how does the human body use fuel? Um, but like, to your point, we believe we were told these things and then we believe them, but we never, we never bothered to, um, analyze the origin of our belief. So for example, food groups, um, so early in my transition, I found the paleo diet, which is a, a, a diet that eliminates the grains, for example, and there's a whole school of thought as to why grains come out. We don't have to go there today. Um, but there's this anti-nutrient piece. 
And so I just tried it. I said, you know what? I, this makes sense to me. I'm just going to try it. I'm not losing any nutrition here by eliminating grains, but it's a food group. And so that's where people push back. Well, you can't eliminate a whole food group. It's like food doesn't exist in groups. The government created these groups. <laughs> like it's just, there's just food. It, the group is food. And I'm just going to tap the brakes on this one food just to see what happens as an experiment. And it's, it's not even, I mean, it's at the base of the pyramid, yeah. the, the, the grains. Um, plus, I would say, I, as far as I can tell, 99% of grain-based products in the supermarket, the grocery stores, um, are refined grains, you know, milled into flour and in processed products. Right, correct. And, you know, even zooming out, there's just no nourishment, no nutrient in a grain that you can't get somewhere else. So if we're, if, if by some chance, the, one of the anti-nutrients in a grain is irritating your gut and causing this downstream cascade of poor health, it behooves you to try eliminating it just to see if it can heal your gut and get you back on the straight and narrow. And don't worry, there's no special nutrition in there at all. What about the fiber though? What about the fiber? <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. We could get plenty of fiber from vegetables, fruit, nuts. We're good. We don't have to worry about it. But it's just, for me, it's always like the pushback is, but that's a food group. I'm like those, those are, that's a construct that we were, that you were told to believe. And that's not your fault, but, but there is no groups of food anyway. It's one of my giant pet peeves. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all these invented concepts. And then we sort of get hooked into all that and then we're like oh I can't go against government recommendations <laughs> right I know yeah so you you cut out grains for a while and what happened yeah so you know that's interesting too because there's that whole gut health piece which again gut health there's another just blanket platitude that that really needs to be some nuance added to but this is this is back you know this is 13 years ago 13 or 14 years ago and um, one of the, one of the, um, sort of areas that I ended up stumbling into in learning to understand insulin was the paleo diet community, because the paleo diet with community was this sort of insulin balancing piece was a big part of it. And then the anti-nutrient piece was another big part of it, which is there's just some foods and, and the whole, the whole kind of spirit behind the paleo diet is like our hunter gatherer ancestors didn't have access to these foods. It was only when we started cultivating them that our health started to decline and whatever, if you believe that or not, I'm honestly not here to debate it because I didn't know if I believed it. I just thought it's worth a try. So when I eliminated grains, that's truly when you know, it's interesting because I, I talk about this with my clients a lot too. They'll talk about their big bellies, like their big, their big, big fat bellies and their parent, their premenopause bellies and this belly fat. And I'll actually say to my clients, are you sure that's fat? Like literally we're on the phone. I can't usually see my clients, but I'll say, why don't you just reach down and try to like grab it? I know that sounds so crazy, but a lot of the time, what people are, are identifying as belly fat is belly bloating. They're just chronically bloated. And I was too, I didn't realize that a big part of my, my sort of abdominal weight gain was just bloating. And this, and also this inflammatory cascade, which causes you to retain water. So there's water, there's bloating, and there was fat. There was three things making me look, you know, fluffy. And when I eliminated the grains, the reduction in my waist circumference was 
insane. Within a week, a friend of mine who I had seen the previous week and said, I'm trying this crazy, like no grain thing. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. And within, within one week, she said, wait a second. She said, all you did was eliminate grains. She's like, you, you look like two sizes smaller. It was just, it just shrinks. It just, all that water releases the, the, the gut healing occurs and the bloating, which is a, to me, a bloating, bloating is a panic signal from the gut that something's not right. And, um, I like viewing it that way. It's like, it's not a big deal, but your gut is responding to something you've eaten or drank. It would be worthwhile to explore that so that your gut can be happy. So it really brought down that abdominal bloating and the water retention for me. And I didn't realize, this is another crazy side effect. I had bad knees forever, right? Partly because I exercised too much. And I thought, well, I've just got bad knees. I had one knee that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't really weight bear on that leg. And I couldn't walk downstairs because the knee was so sore. And it's like, I remember I was at a restaurant one time and I asked the server where the restrooms were. And she said, oh, they're just downstairs to the right. And I remember just like groaning, like, why do they put the restrooms in the basements of these places? I don't want to walk down the stairs. So I got ready to walk down the stairs and observed that my knee didn't hurt at all. And in fact, I don't have bad knees. I just had this joint inflammation as part of a systemic inflammatory response. And in eliminating the grains, my knees were completely fine, actually. So that kind of thing is interesting because that's information. Something about the grains for me aren't good. And I'm, I'm grateful I did that um, experiment. Some people might do that experiment and have no improvement of symptoms. And it's like, great, now you know. So go mm-hmm. for it, eat grains. Yeah. And to this day, like, I mean, of course I'm eating bread occasionally. Of course I'm eating pizza occasionally. It's not a staple in my diet, but now I even have more information. I know that corn specifically is a really intense grain from a really bad one for me. Wheat, I can kind of handle barley. No, right. Like I have this sort of list now of the foods that support and don't support me. And that information is incredibly powerful. Just before we continue with my chat with Erin, I wanted to thank you for listening to this podcast. And if this is your first time here, welcome. I'm so happy you've discovered this podcast and I hope that it will inspire you to take one more step towards your life after sugar. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review the podcast. Just scroll down and tap on the stars to rate it. And if you want to add your review, go to the podcast player where you're listening to this podcast, scroll down, tap on write a review and write your review. I love reading your reviews and I really take them to heart. It really inspires me to continue with this podcast. Yeah, that is very empowering to know how you react because you know people jump to the conclusion that uh, grains if you can't handle grains then you're automatically gluten intolerant celiac and it's like yeah there are you know other shades of grain intolerances let's say there are for sure and you know the the celiac thing is interesting because that's the pushback you might get is like look if you're not celiac there's no point in eliminating gluten it's so dumb so first of all there's a whole non-celiac gluten sensitivity sort of column of people who definitely react to the gluten grains, not in a celiac way, but there's a reaction, there's symptoms that occur. But to me, it's like, again, I'm going to zoom out. It's like, what if, what if you uncovered, for example, that, um, 
you know, staying up way too late exacerbated your PMS symptoms. You'd say, aha, okay. For me, I, when I'm PMSing, I need to go to bed early. I figured that out for myself. It doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that you, you don't have to find science or research to back this. You just did the science. You just did the research. When you stay up too late, your PMS is worse. So therefore, I'm going to go to bed early. When it's <laughs> To me, it's the same thing. It's like when I eat corn, I have three days of brain fog and my eyes are so dry, I can't even put my contact lenses in. That's a me thing. I'm not saying you don't have to eat corn, but I'm not going to because yeah. it doesn't feel good for me. And I don't, I don't see why we have to argue this in, in sort of the echo chambers of nutrition. Like I, I decide what's good for me. Right. And do, and you don't have to run off and find double blind, you know, scientific studies on rats or whatever to prove it. Exactly. Uh, Rob Wolf had this, he had this one passage in one of his books he said, you don't need a random control, randomized control trial to know that if you hit your hand with a hammer, it's going to really hurt. Like we just know this because we've hit our hands with hammers enough time to know. So I, I'm not disparaging the necessity of research, um, but we also shouldn't disparage the experience of the lived, um, lived experience and, the, and collecting data from our own personal experiments. Now, I think where, where it gets troublesome is when my my end of one experiment, which works for me, now I start shouting it from the rooftops and declaring it a rule for the masses. I, I don't do that. That's not how I roll. I do encourage my clients to do their own experiments. Like, let's start with this, try this out for a week or 10 days. And it's things like grains, dairy, for example. When I first graduated my nutrition program, I took dairy away from everybody because it was a holistic nutrition school and they were really anti-dairy. They were just very plant-based generally. Um, so I took dairy away from everyone because dairy was inflammatory. And then the research on that really changed. And my point of view on it changed. And by the way, people hate giving up dairy, hate it. So I've softened. It's like, we'll talk about, we'll talk about dairy when you're ready. Coffee black, we'll try it, but we're not in a hurry. You get to decide. So I do encourage my clients to do their own end of one experiments to create their own list of supportive and unsupportive foods for them. Corn might be okay. For me, corn is a no-go. Great. Okay. It's great. It's, it's important to just trust and know your own, know thyself basically. Yeah. Yeah. Know thyself. Exactly. And what do you think that the general public, you know, regular consumers like me with no background in nutrition, whatever, you know, <laughs> no university studies in nutrition, um, just in, you know, analyzing Shakespeare for myself, <laughs> for what it's worth. <laughs> what do you think we should know about our metabolism so that we become minimally educated about how the body actually works? Yes. Okay. Oh, my gosh. So one of the first, I have this set of rules and, and I use the word rule very loosely because all rules have nuance. All nutrition rules have nuance. Just, I want to put that out there. But my first rule is always answer hunger with a meal. So what this is speaking to is the fact that first of all, hunger is a perfectly polite signal from your cells for nourishment, nourishment. Okay. I use the word nourishment because it, it's not just fuel. It's not just fuel. If you look down at your body, you've got 
hundreds of thousands, you know, tens of thousands of calories of fuel on your body. We're good for fuel. You know, even a relatively lean person has got good amount of fat on their body. That's fuel. We've got 2000 calories of sugar in our body. That's fuel. Um, so hunger occurs to, cause the body needs nourishment and that includes amino acids and minerals and maybe some fuel, but like, it's not all fuel. So I get my clients thinking through and appreciating and not fearing hunger by just sort of framing it up as the cells need something from you. They're politely asking you for something. So it behooves you to answer that request instead of white knuckling it or thinking it's not time for my meal yet or whatever. When your body cues of hunger, answer it with a meal, eat to satiety. So it's, and there's semantics there. Answer hunger with a meal is like make a whole meal of food and eat the meal until you're satiated, then put the fork down. I'm not having a snack because the snack is limping along this hunger. It's never quite satiating it. But what's really interesting is to answer the hunger and eat to satiety because satiety is a signal from the cell that you did a good job. So satiety is like the cell said, hey, great, we're good. Put the fork down. We are good to go. We've got amino acids. We got minerals. We got fuel. We've got a lot of stuff to keep us busy here. Um, your body is, your cells are running the show inside your body. Your job is to just provide the inputs and you did a good job. If you achieve satiety, you're going to be satiated for a long time while your body puts that fuel to work. So I think understanding hunger and satiety is a really important place to start because diet culture really did break that relationship for us. Again, we, we, we think hunger is bad. Like I can't tell you how many clients I've had that have said, you know, I've tried to lose weight before, but I just get so hungry. And so hunger is the thing that's ruining their efforts to diet. It's like hunger is an absolutely, it's a biological call for, for nourishment. Like you're not going to out willpower that. So let's just live with it and learn to appreciate it. So that's the first thing is connecting to that signal. And then it's like, okay, now how do we really optimize for satiety? How do we give the, the cells, the body, what they really need? And so the amino acid thing is interesting because there's this protein leverage hypothesis, which suggests that protein or amino acid complement in the blood is the leverage point for satiety. It's a, it's a hypothesis. There's, there's some compelling research kind of happening to, to sort of prove or disprove it, but it's interesting. And we know this because protein is, what do they say? It keeps you fuller longer. That's just satiety. That's the feeling of satiety. Um, but minerals are interesting too. So that's not necessarily metabolic though, right? From a metabolism standpoint, what I'm talking to my clients about is appreciating all the fuels. All of the fuels are fine. All fuels count. They're all good. Your body should be able to nimbly oscillate between all of them. So your cells should be able to handle sugar. They should be able to deal with fat. That's the mitochondria in the cells. We got to wake those up, wake up the mitochondria so that you can, you know, use fat as, as fuel in the cells and ketones, the byproduct of fat uh, mobilization. All of these fuels are fine because it's so funny how each of those fuels gets vilified by different communities. Yes. Like, yes. like the low carb community doesn't think sugar counts. The, um, you know, the bros in the fitness world are like anti-fat everybody's kind of anti-ketone because it feels like a fad diet, but it's actually a really viable fuel for the brain and body. Like we evolved with ketones for a reason. So I just like my clients to just like drop whatever maybe dogma they, they came to me with and accept and appreciate all fuels and, and trust that your body will pick the fuel that makes the most sense for whatever you're doing. So for most of our day, we're doing stuff like this. We're, we're standing at a desk, we're working, whatever we're burning fat. 
this is fat. I'm burning fat right now. You and I, we're, we're burning fat right now. Cool. Right? If we decide to go for a, a brisk jog up a mountain, at some point, the body might flip to sugar because that's maybe the intensity has gone a little higher and that's a fast burning fuel. Great. We want the body to be able to flip into sugar burning mode if it makes sense. Um, we get the, the option to burn ketones if we're kind of in a fasted state, which is absolutely normal for us as well. It's just, it should feel like nothing is happening. Like your, your experience of it is my body's working. My body knows what fuel it needs. It's just oscillating between them as, as it sees fit. That's metabolic flexibility. And that's my goal for my clients is to flexibly nimbly use all fuels. Yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah, that I mean, that's what how I feel that my body functions. And even though I don't eat the white sugar and the white flour or any type of flour most most of the time, um, that doesn't mean that my body's not getting glucose. It is exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's where and you know this and your listeners probably know this, but like, I also try to teach my clients to reframe their understanding of that word sugar. Like, I'm not really talking about table sugar. I'm talking about glucose in your blood. Like, and what, what converts to glucose in your blood? Glucose is the sugar your body's using. And that can come from table sugar, or it can come from carrots. <laughs> like, it really right. doesn't matter. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And which is why, you know, when I was first in the keto groups thinking, oh, yeah, I found my people. I ran out of there, this, you know, <laughs> in like stressed out because people were policing each other. You've got a carrot on your plate. I'm like, what's wrong with you? Carrots <laughs> get such a bad rap in keto groups. Oh, anyway, don't get me started on keto. I did a whole podcast episode about keto. It's like, you know, it, it, the idea is great, but. The problem is that it just became another dumb diet with no nuance so like the keto diet oh this is my pet peeve with keto is is this food keto friendly like it what it depends what else you've eaten that day a bottle of red wine could be keto friendly (laughs) a whole bottle if i didn't have any other sugar today as long as i'm in that ketogenic range of daily carbohydrate any I hate that. It's like, there's no keto foods. It's a, it's a, it's a metabolic state of being ketogenesis and being keto adapted and and the body creating ketones in the absence of insulin. And it's like, I I just feel like we just made that another diet with weird, weird platitudes and rules that nobody understands. Yep. And it doesn't solve the problem. It's just, I, you know, and I see so many people who went from being completely sugar burning, like completely sort of this carbohydrate dependency state, which by the way, I was in a carb dependency state when I was pre-diabetic because I was eating so many carbs because I was exercising. Fitness culture told me I was having probably 600 grams of carbohydrates a day and lean protein. So I was getting nothing, but I've seen people go from these carb dependent eating paradigms to completely keto dependent eating paradigms. It's like you, you just traded one, one dependency for another. Exactly. We want to oscillate. We want to be really fluid with fuel. Yeah. That's how the yeah. body's designed. Um, I just want to ask you one last question because I know like you're well versed about um metabolism. This whole I remember when I was a teenager being told you got to eat five, six times a day, or your metabolism will break, right? And I had this vision of like it cracking or something, but it's, it's not a twig. 
your metabolism. You can't just bend it and, and break it. What does that mean? I mean, I know it means nothing now, but what did they what did they mean by your metabolism can break? Wow. I, there's so many questions inside that question. So first of all, does it break like a dry twig? No. Oh my gosh, no. This is actually the greatest news. The metabolism is a very elastic system of the body. It has to be. It is our number one survival system. If you think of all animals in nature, and I always like to think of myself as an animal, job number one is survival. And the most important thing for that is fuel food. The second most important thing is reproduction, right? So, but metabolism, our fueling system of the body, it has to be, it, it can't be fragile. If it was that fragile, we would not be here. We would not as a species be here podcasting right now. That we. The metabolism is very elastic. And this is good news because if you have by some chance spent your whole life, like I did breaking it, and I'll touch on that in a second, it bounces back. It will absolutely bounce back for you. So that's the pep talk is that, Hey, you can't break it. You can't don't worry. We it'll come back for you. If you just start treating it a little better, but this idea of breaking your metabolism, you know, to be honest with you, I sometimes use this language with my clients because they use it they use it. I've broken my metabolism by dieting. I, I yo-yo dieted, or I did this, or I did that. And my metabolism's broken. So that's colloquially how we know it. And the way I interpret that is my body's not using fuel well. So yeah, that's a little bit of a, a momentary defect in the function of your metabolism, which is totally fixable. So that's the good news. But the many small meals thing that you described, this whole, you have to eat every two hours to keep your metabolic fire stoked. It's completely upside down from how the body is designed to use fuel, the human body. Now I have, I have grazing animals out here on my property. I have, I have horses. They have to eat constantly because their biology is different. They don't produce gastric juices unless they're constantly eating. They're on a hundred percent carbohydrate diet. So they have to keep eating. That's them. We're not them. We are not designed to eat constantly. And we know this from our evolutionary history, if you believe in that. And if you don't, that's okay too. Um, to be honest with you, I believe that eating many small meals, frequent small meals is part of what made me pre-diabetic because I'm now flooding my body with little bits of fuel all day long, like little bits of fuel, like here's more fuel, insulin's coming out to pick up this. I'm just constantly bathing my cells in fuel and insulin all day long. And so my insulin receptors slam the door, like what is going on? This is not the biologically expected experience. So it slammed the door shut on my insulin receptors, which is what made me insulin resistant. Um, this is why I get my clients to tag to hunger and satiety, eat when you're hungry, eat to satiety, ride the wave of satiety. When you feel hungry again, you eat again. We don't do these little in-between meals. It can, it's a, it's a metabolically confusing paradigm for an omnivore animal. Like us, we are meant to go long periods of time without fuel. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, oh my gosh, I could go on and about that one for a long time. There's just so much wrong with that, but it's a perfect example of something we were told to do that kind of makes sense. But here's one more thing. This is a cool analogy. The idea of the metabolic fire. I've used this analogy in my, in my group program. So think about a fire. Okay. So we're coming into winter here. I have a wood stove in my cottage here. Cause it gets really cold. I can, I can make a fire out of little sticks and bark and twigs and paper and it will light and it will put out some heat, but I'm going to have to keep putting more twigs and sticks and paper and twigs, sticks, paper all day long. I'm going to be on that fire, just getting that little sputtering fire to keep going. Or I can get a birch log fire going. You put a birch log on the fire, it burns for hours. 
when you put another birch log on, you're good to go for hours. So in terms of metabolic fires, if we're eating every two hours, we're running a little sticks and twigs and paper fire that we have to tend to and micromanage all day long just to stay warm. We can switch metabolically to this birch log fire, pop a log on the fire, go and do your life. You don't have to come back and deal with it for hours later. So it's sort of like, what kind of fire do you want to run? I don't think too many people really want to spend their lives just feeding a fire. Yeah. Yeah. That's not how we're designed. Oh, I love that analogy. You know, you got me there. Any analogy is good for this literature teacher. <laughs> Wonderful. And so well explained. And, you know, your, your brand, your site is eat simple. And I think that is the operative word or two operative words, definitely eating. Yay. But simple, you know, we tend to just complicate everything so much. And if we can just simplify things without dumbing them down, you know, without... Uh, then then I think as just generally as consumers and citizens and regular people will just be a whole lot better off. I completely agree. And I think what you said is important is that we can simplify it by understanding it. So it's a little bit of upfront work to kind of wrap your head around it, but what, how the body works. But then once you do, it's very, very simple. It's a lot simpler to, to invest that upfront cost of seeking to understand your body than it is to continually fight the platitudes and the rules of diet culture that just aren't working. Like just look, it's not working. So it's, it's really worth that upfront investment of just seeking to understand your body. And then it is so, so simple. I totally agree. I mean, that is my lived experience. Simple. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much. I'm going to put your details with the show notes with this episode. And honestly, um, thank you so much, Erin, for talking with me. Thank you, Netta. All right. Ah, what a great conversation with Erin, especially about ditching that diet mentality that I certainly grew up in, and Erin also grew up in, including in a family dynamic where her mum was always on a diet, and probably you had that in your life as well. I mean, we don't mean to fall into the diet mentality, but it affects most of us, I've found, because it's just everywhere. And it kind of seeps into our beliefs and the way we see ourselves, the way we see our body, our food and our relationship with food, especially with sugar. So it's so refreshing to talk to someone like Erin, who spent nearly 30 years in the fitness industry and who's managed to step out of that whole diet culture and to heal herself, her body her metabolism, and her relationship with herself. And even for those of us who aren't experts in human biology and the biochemical workings of metabolism, like myself and maybe like yourself, I know it's possible for us to simplify how we relate to food and especially to sugar and how we can transform our relationship with sugar to get to a peaceful place where we don't need sugar or miss it anymore. I know it's possible because I've done it, but especially because I've helped lots of other people get there too. How? With all the free tips and resources on the Life After Sugar Facebook page, as well as my brand new TikTok account, find me at netta underscore life after sugar and my Instagram account at 
My Life After Sugar and the Life After Sugar YouTube channel, as well as on my website, aftersugarclub.com, and that's where you'll find even more free resources, as well as the chance to get practical guidance, group support, and accountability in the After Sugar Club. I created the After Sugar Club for people like you, health conscious, committed, curious, and a little bit rebellious. So if you're looking for a safe space that's not on Facebook to share your wins and challenges on your path to living a healthier life, which includes cutting sugar and, for lots of us, flour, then the After Sugar Club is the place for you. I like to call it like the Netflix of sugar because when you become a member, you get access to a growing library of all kinds of different resources, not just about the types of sugar or how to cut sugar or where to find foods in the grocery store that don't contain added sugars, but also about how to make your own fermented foods and drinks to look after your gut health and especially practical step-by-step exercises and assignments that I designed to help you transform your relationship with sugar so that you can get to a place where you don't need it or miss it anymore. You can come to our twice monthly check-in calls to get my input and insights and group support and that really makes all the difference. Step out of the diet culture. You don't need to see sugar as being bad In fact, you don't need to see any food in terms of good or bad. The freedom that I talk about comes from having a neutral relationship with sugar and enjoying your food and your life, including your intermittent fasting lifestyle that's so much easier when you're not eating sugar. So join us today. Go to aftersugarclub.com and click on the big green button Join the club. Thank you for listening. That's it for this week. Keep in touch and see you soon for another episode.